very simple subject of trust. Trust in God. Something we all know um, is important, but some area, an area where we often struggle. Hands up if you never struggle trusting God. Wow, got some amazing people over there. <laughs> A lot of people do struggle um, in their walk with the Lord. But what I feel the Lord has put in my heart is to call us to a deeper level of trust, a deeper dependency. Uh, there's a scripture that came to my mind uh, the other day, and it says this, trust in the Lord at all times. Okay, trust in, I'll just read that to you, trust in the Lord at all times. And <clears throat> it goes on to say, and this is Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Also, there's another scripture which says this, in Psalm 31, it says, I trust in you, O Lord, you are my God, my times, my times are in your hands. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is trusting God in all times, because we all pass through different times in our life. There are times when things are hard, when you feel like life is tough and you're going through a desert. There are times when things are easy and everything's going smooth and wonderful. And there are times when perhaps you're going through the consequences of things that you did which maybe were not the Lord's will. But I felt the Lord say to me that we're to trust him at all times. All times. We're to lean on God. And <clears throat> I want to just look at that briefly. Uh, in this life of the children of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you've got the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to look at this uh, aspect of trusting the Lord at all times. And I'm going to start in verse 2. Uh, this is when the people of Israel have just come out through the desert. They're about to go into God's promised land. And this is what the Lord says to them through Moses. He says, verse 2, chapter 8, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So he talks about the desert and the discipline of God and how God provided. And then he talks about the wonderful promised land, which is a total contrast. Go to verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat, barley, vines and honey, Sorry, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. 
a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. So you read about the desert, you read about the promised land. I just felt the Lord wanting to remind us this morning of three areas of trust. The first one is to trust him at all times. There are going to be times in your life when things are hard. I mean, I don't know if any of you ever feel like you're walking through a desert. You know, a desert is sand, sand, and more sand. And occasionally you come across a hard black rock. But it's not nice in the desert, it's tough. And these people went through the desert, you see. It's very tiring walking through sand, by the way. You ever tried running through sand? It's very tiring. Uh, I went to Holland recently, and uh, Germany, and we went to this beach, and I walked up and down in the sand a lot with the kids, and I was tired. And these people were finding it tough in the desert. And sometimes life can be like that. But I want to encourage you with this thought. Verse 2, it says, The Lord your God led you all the way. He's with you all the way. He doesn't lead you part of the way. He doesn't lead you some of the way, but all of the way. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I just think it's amazing how God looked after them in the desert. You see, the desert was tough. I mean, they had death. Maybe you've lost someone in your family. They had sickness. They had a lack of food, lack of water, the heat. But God blessed them in the desert, even though they were in a desert. Do you know, even though they were under the consequences of their disobedience, God blessed them. You know, God... You know, I want to say this. don't want to be negative, but... There are consequences sometimes to disobedience. We have to face that truth. We like to think, I can get off the hook. I always remember the war film, Fury. I know I went to the cinema to sit with Terry. And there's a little quote in there where they're talking about Hitler. And one of the guys on the Sherman tank is a Christian. They nickname him Bible. And he says, do you think Hitler could be saved? They say, they say to this guy, do you think Hitler could be saved? And he says, he says, well, if he really repents, yeah, he can be forgiven of everything. Then he says this, but it won't save him from man's justice. You know, there are consequences sometimes in life. And these Israelites were living with the consequences of consistently rebelling against the Lord. So they were going out into the desert. But here's the goodness of God. In that place of judgment, God gave them manna to eat. He gave them water out of a hard rock. He gave them quail to eat. He gave them a pillar of cloud to shade them from the hot sunshine. He gave them a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm because it's very cold in the desert at night. And look at this. It says their feet did not swell. What I'm trying to get across to you is the goodness of God, even if you're going through the mill, their feet did not swell. Please look for the goodness of God in the midst of difficulty. Now, if I go around Blue Water with Karina, my beloved wife, she's a very good wife, by the way. She doesn't drag me shopping very often. Praise the Lord for that. But on the rare occasions when I've gone around Blue Water, you know what it's like? I mean, my feet swell. My feet are killing me. Whereas these people, 40 years, their feet did not swell. I mean, they might smell, but not swell. And then the other thing is how God blessed them. Their clothes didn't wear out. Hands up anyone who's wearing clothes 40 years old. Anyone got clothes that are 40 years old? I don't know, you might have a 
pilot's jacket. Okay. But I don't know, I haven't got any clothes that old. I mean, I'm not even, I was going to say I'm not even that old myself. But the truth is, God did not leave his people in the desert. And one thing he wanted to teach them, and what, maybe this is something God wants to teach us when we go through the desert experience, is to lean on him. Depend on him. I may have said this here before, but depend utterly on him. They could not buy food in the desert. They could not grow food in the desert. They had to look to him. They could not go and find water in the desert. There were no wells. There were no rivers. God had to do it through a rock, a hard rock. What I'm trying to say is God can be trusted in the wilderness, trusted in the desert. He will be good to you. He was good to his people. And they came out of that place. Um, having learnt they needed to live absolutely, utterly dependent on the Lord. It was the only way to live in that situation. And it's the only way to live today. They were so dependent on God that at night when the children wanted a biscuit, they'd go to the biscuit tin and there'd be nothing there. Because every day God said... You collect enough for the day, and if you try and store it up, it will breed maggots, it will be stinky, you'll have nothing. So every day they would go and find an empty uh, biscuit tin, but they were getting God's supply. And maybe if you're in a hard time, God is saying, will you look to me, depend on me, trust me. Okay, but then he talks about the wonderful promised land. Totally different to the desert. Listen to this. The desert, right? Dry as a bone. No water anywhere. The promised land. Streams, pools of water, springs. And water filled the land. Water was all over that place. And so, God also says, you know, you're not just going to get manna now. You're going to get wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey. Bread will not be scarce. You may have to make the bread, but it won't be scarce. There'll be wheat everywhere. The other thing you'll find is iron and copper. So in other words, God says, I'm bringing you into a time of great abundance. And a lot of these people did see that. I know some, a lot of them died in the wilderness, but the children generation, the second generation, they saw this new land. Why is it in there? I'll tell you why it's there. Because it says after this in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God. For the good land he has given you. Be careful you do not forget the Lord, your God. Verse 12, it says, Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. In, out of the land of slavery. Verse 17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Then there's a warning. In verse 19. If you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Now, 
God wanted them to trust him in the desert, in the hard times. But he also said, when you get into the land of plenty, are you going to depend on me then as well? Can I just say this? If God blesses River Church massively, and I pray he does, will we, start, will we stop relying on the Lord? It's almost easier to rely on the Lord in the hard times. But when you get into the plentiful times, I feel the Lord is saying, I want my people to rely on me then as well. If God blesses you. Often when revival comes in churches, I've read this, when a revival comes, the revival stops at some point because they stop relying on the Lord. They start thinking, we can do it ourselves. Look at us, we're cool. We've got a big church. Woo hoo hoo. <laughs> so that's really just my first point a call from the Lord to trust him in what is really bad what is really hard but also trust him when everything's going hunky-dory don't forget the Lord your God right the second point area where I want to I believe the Lord is saying I want a deeper level of trust is in the area of his ability to use you and me what I mean by that is, do you believe God can use you? <laughs> do you trust him? Or do you think, God can't use me really? I'm not a big superstar. Do you think, yeah, God will use, you know, someone else, but he won't use me? And I want to just remind us of this truth I believe the Lord is saying, I want people to more deeply trust in my ability to use them. You see, I want to draw your attention to three Old Testament passages this morning. The second one is in Judges. Uh, it's in Judges. And it's about the judges of Israel, the people who were God's deliverers. And I feel to encourage you by looking at one person in particular out of this group. His name was Ehud. Weird name, Ehud. Weird name, don't call your child Ehud, it's a weird name. But the name means unite. And I think what he did, he united the people of Israel. But he was a complete unlikely lad for God to use. Do you know why? Because it says in Judges uh, chapter 3, it just says this. <clears throat> the Israelites cried out to the Lord... And he gave them a deliverer, whose name was Ehud, who was a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, you might say, what's the big deal with that? He was left-handed. I mean, my dad's left-handed. Oh, Daniela. Daniela's left-handed. Yeah? It's not a problem with being left-handed, is it? But what we don't realise is, what that scripture really means is his right hand was withered. He had a withered right hand. And it is very likely that Ehud was mocked because he came from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin means the right-handed tribe, the tribe of the right hand. In Jewish thought, the right hand was authority, power, anointing. It was the hand of power. It was gifting. And if you had a withered right hand, in that society, there was a kind of a writing off of you. Ehud was a write-off. In fact, he was so a write-off that they trusted him to take the tribute to the enemy king. There was an enemy king in the land, a big fat guy called Eglon. 
big, big, enormous chap, king of the Moabites, and they would pick the most the Moabites would pick the most despised person among the Israelites to present their tribute gift. You know, it's because if you gave a tribute gift to a king, you were saying, "I'm a defeated people." So the Moabites go, "Who can we pick to send the gift?" to show that we have defeated Israel. Ah, let's pick that left-handed geezer over there, Ehud. He's a cripple. Let's give him the gift. So Ehud, the cripple, goes up to the king with the tribute. And everyone's, whether out loud or in their hearts, are laughing at the way Israel has been defeated. Everyone's looking at the withered right hand. But you know what God was looking at? God was looking at his left hand. And I want to tell you, you might feel you aren't very gifted you might feel you've got disability in your life through what's happened to you or through your upbringing or whatever. But I tell you, think of Ehud. God is not looking at your disability. He's looking at what you can do. They trusted this Ehud so much, they even let him go alone with the enemy king because they thought, well, he's such a non-threat. He's such a nobody. He can go in. I mean, Ehud in the story, I'm not going to read it for time, but he went to this enemy king and he said, I've got a special message for you, O king. And the enemy king thought he was so harmless, he let him in. Come on, then, come into my private chamber and give me a, let's have a chat. And once he was in there, Ehud got a hidden dagger from, he was hiding a dagger under his clothes. And he plunged it into the heart of the enemy king, or the, the belly of the enemy king, and defeated someone who had been oppressing Israel for years. And I think after this great liberation, he managed to command the army and Israel was free for 80 years. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you with this. God can use you. Don't look at your disability. Don't look at this, that and the other. Do you trust that God has ability to use you? Like Ehud, the deliverer. You know... God uses an unlikely bunch. And I just feel there's this problem sometimes with us, or at least with myself, we're not confident that I can really do anything with the Lord. But God is saying, I want you to be more confident, more bold in trusting me. If God puts something in your heart, go for it. You see, God used him. And you think about the other deliverers. I mean, there were loads of them. They were all very different. There was one who was the classic you know, deliverer. Othniel, his name was. His nickname was the Lion. He was a real, you know, Arnold-type person. And he was a military leader, and everyone thought, yeah, well, everyone's got to obviously be like him. But no, God used the left-handed guy. God also used a woman. <gasps> a woman. He used a woman called Deborah. Everyone was expecting a man, but God used a woman. So there you go. <laughs> Can I just say this? It's a bit of a joke. They say, when God has a difficult job, he calls a man. But when he has an impossible job, he calls a woman. God also used some very unlikely characters. Uh, Samson. Samson was a hooligan. He would have supported Chelsea, I think, if um, he'd been around. No, uh, but he was a hooligan. Um, Jephthah. Jephthah was a bandit and a son of a prostitute. Gideon was a chicken. Gideon hid. He was hiding and God said, you're a man of valour. I'm going to use you. I just want renew the call from the Lord. Will you trust me to use you? Don't look at your witheredness. Don't look at your disability. Look at God. 
who can use you. That's the second area of trust. So I spoke about trusting him at all times in your life. The second area, trusting him to use you. And the third area, the sort of final area of trust, is trusting him with our sin. This is the sort of juicy one, but it, trusting him to deal with our sin. Now what I mean by that is, some people don't really trust that God knows best. And they prefer to keep certain things hidden from him. Certain things, uh, they prefer to leave certain things between God and themselves that get in the way. And they don't really think, I mean, for, here's an example. You're hurt by someone. You've got unforgiveness. It's much easier and nicer to hold on to it than to trust God with it and say, Lord, this is coming between me and you. I want you to take it away. Here's another one. Um, very similar. If you're offended, if you're offended with somebody, you know, someone offended you, it's very easy to hold on to the offense than it is to trust God with that and give it to him and present it to him. Some people may have a hidden thing, like a habit or an idol. And it's, you know, can I just say, it's not easy to repent. But God, I believe, is calling us to trust him with a deeper repentance. And I just want to finish with two stories from the Bible. So hopefully I'm not too long today. About repentance. <clears throat> First one is in Luke chapter 6. And it's a, the very well-known story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand or the sandy soil is probably more accurate. There are two stories. Let me just read it very quickly. <clears throat> Luke 6, verse 46. This is called The Wise and the Foolish Builder. And I believe this is a picture of repentance. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. I believe this is a picture of repentance and I'll explain why. See, I think in this story Jesus had in mind one field of ground, one, one place, it was one location, perhaps it was sandy soil, and the two guys building the houses, one just said, right, I'm just going to build a house. Built it in the field. The other guy said, can't build here, we've got to dig. He didn't find a rock sticking up. We sometimes think he found a rock poking out and he built it on the rock. No, he dug deep. He had to dig down. And he had to dig until he found the rock. And I believe the Lord is calling us, we're to dig out the stuff that gets in the way between us and the rock. The stuff that gets in the way between us and Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Dig it out. If there's stuff between you and the Lord, you've got to dig it out and get rid of it so that you will build upon the rock. You've got to dig down. Digging is not 
straightforward. It, sometimes it's hard, it'll hurt, it's sweaty. I mean, when they um, built my extension at my house, they had to dig for about a week, didn't they? It was a lot of work. But it's worth it. Digging can be dirty. You know, digging up your stuff is not good. It makes you feel it hurts. But the Lord doesn't want us to live with stuff that comes between us and him. He wants us to trust him with it. Let's repent properly. Let's dig out this stuff and get down onto Jesus, the rock. What are some of the things we find down there? Well, if, I mean, if you're digging, you might find a big boulder. You know, a big boulder can be there. Get rid of it. For me, I was talking, I mean, a big boulder could be you're hurt about something. Or it could be an attitude towards a certain person. An offence. And God says, you, you know, you've got to get rid of it. Trust me with that. I, I always remember Joel, I don't know if he's here, he's probably not here, but Joel once shared, and he spoke about digging in his garden and how he used to find this big root. You know, a root is really hard to get out. Thank you. <laughs> the root is really hard to get out, isn't it? You know? Um, and the scripture talks about roots sometimes in our life. The root of bitterness. Something that's being fed. Something that's alive and not... It's something that's being fed regularly. It's a root that's living. A root of bitterness. And God, I just felt the Lord remind us... Dig out the foundations, repent properly, come to the rock, get rid of the stuff that comes between you and Jesus. We all know different things for our lives, what they are. <clears throat> Another quick passage uh, about repentance and trusting God is Joshua, the book of Joshua. This is my last passage. I'm going around the Bible today, but I think this is relevant. Joshua, when Joshua, the uh, leader of Israel, conquered the promised land, he had many battles. And there's one battle that I was reading, because I'm, I'm reading through the book of Joshua at the moment, and one battle stood out to me. And it was the battle where he defeated five kings, five kings, all on the same day. And the interesting thing about these kings were that they were hidden in a cave. Um, Joshua was fighting the army and the kings decided to hide themselves away out of view in a cave. And these kings were coming between Joshua and victory. They were getting in the way. And sometimes there can be things hidden in our lives that come between us and our Joshua, Jesus. It's the same thing as what I said before. Things coming in the way. These kings were hidden. And it says in Joshua, if you just read it quickly, Joshua chapter 10, verse 22. When they were discovered, this is what Joshua did to them. He said, open the mouth of the cave, bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here 
and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. To me, this is a picture of repentance, okay? Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. And the Lord, I believe, says to us, be strong and courageous in dealing with your sin. Be strong and courageous in bringing it to me. Don't hide it away in the cave. Joshua says, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies who are going to fight. And then Joshua, Joshua himself, struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees. They were left hanging on the trees until the evening. The cave can be like the human heart. And things hide in there. Things hide. The, the cave can be like the human heart. The, the cave is dark. It can have recesses, places to hide. Things can be hidden away in the cave, hidden from view. But the Lord will help us discover those things. And then he wants us to bring them to him in trust for him to, de to destroy. The cave can be like the human heart. And by the way, just quickly say, the cave can be quite deceptive. You can deceive yourself about your sin. Have you ever been in a cave? Has anyone ever gone in caves? Anyone? Do you know some caves, if you go into them too far, you can get lost. <laughs> it's deceptive. You can think you're going somewhere and you end up... I mean, there are people that have died um, that have tried to explore caves. And I think the heart, it says in the Bible, our heart is deceitful. But if the Lord puts his finger on something, I want to encourage you to be strong and courageous. Bring it to him. Let him deal with it. And very briefly, what do the names of these kings mean? Well, one is called the king of Jerusalem. And I looked up his name. His name, I don't want to bore you, but his name is Adonai Zedek, and it means self-righteous. It means self-righteous. Some people think they're good enough for God. Thank you very much. Don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. I'm a good person. I know people like that in my own family. They say, I'm a good guy. Why do I need, I'm better than you Christians. Why do I need Jesus? That's the Adoni Zedek. It's the self-righteousness hiding in the cave. The name of the second king is Hebron. Hebron means a binding friendship or bondage. And some people have bound themselves to things that are not right. They have an unhealthy attachment, an unhealthy friendship with something that Jesus wants to deal with. Um, people can have an unhealthy attachment. You know, one thing I read about recently, which I found quite scary, is... When you go to work, particularly if you're a man, and you've got a secretary, right, a lady, <laughs> I'm not talking about a physical affair. This hasn't happened to me, by the way. <laughs> but I'm not talking about a physical affair. But you can have what's called an emotional affair with someone. You can start being attracted to them. And you, you form a bond. Nothing's happened. There's no physical um, sin as such. But there's that emotional alliance or unhealthy attachment. Sometimes hiding in our hearts there are things that we've become unhealthily attached to that the Lord wants to deal with. 
we, we trust him with it. The third name of the third king is Jarmuth. That just means lifted up and high. It means pride. Pride. Some people are too proud to come to the Lord. Too proud. The fourth king, his name, Lachish, that just means stubborn. It means hard. I don't know if anyone thinks they're stubborn. <laughs> but it's stubbornness. The Bible's quite um, strong on stubbornness. It says that stubbornness and rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. It says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity. It's, it's, it's a quite a serious thing to be stubborn against God. And then the last name of the last king uh, was Eglon. And his name means like a calf. And really we're reminded of the golden calf in Israel, the idol. He was a picture of idolatry. So these five kings represent self-righteousness, um, if I can remember them, uh, unhealthy bondage, pride, stubbornness and idolatry. That's what they really represent. And Joshua says, are you going to bring them to me? Let me deal with them. Let me kill them. This is what I call real repentance. And I'm going to finish just by saying, you know, God is calling us to trust him this morning. That's really what I felt the word is. Trust me in the hard times and good times of life. Trust me that I can use you with your gifting and trust me with your sin. And I will quote to finish a, um, a beatitude that isn't actually in the Bible. Um, you know Jesus said the beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, here's a good one that I heard someone once say. Blessed are the desperate, for they shall be delivered. You've got to want this. You've got to want to come and be close to the Lord and trust him. Okay? So, I'm finished. <laughs> what I like to do is just 